Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We usually don't report on the weather in this show, but we will this morning. That's because a record-breaking heat wave is expected to broil much of the state this Labor Day weekend, with temperatures well above 100 degrees in many places. And because of the coronavirus pandemic, finding relief from the heat may not be easy. Here's the California Report's Angela Corral. The National Weather Service says the temperatures will start climbing today and should peak by Monday. In Southern California, many temperature records are likely to fall, and there's a chance that some all-time record highs will be reached. But don't crank up that air conditioning, because the manager of the state power grid is calling for voluntary conservation tomorrow through Monday between the hours of 3 and 9 p.m. The warning follows last month's heat wave, which strained the grid to the point where utilities were ordered to implement rolling blackouts for the first time since 2001. And you may not be able to head to the beach either, depending on where you live. That's because authorities in some parts of the state are trying to keep people from gathering at the shore for Labor Day activities to prevent a new COVID-19 outbreak. San Francisco beaches will be open, but those in Pacifica and Santa Cruz will be closed. So will beaches in Monterey County, including Big Sur, Carmel, and Pacific Grove. In Santa Barbara, people are allowed in the water and can run or walk along the beach, but no sunbathing. Beaches in Los Angeles County will be open, but health authorities say that could change if it gets too crowded. For the California Report, I'm Angela Corral. And fire officials say the hot weather could help spread current fires they're fighting or start new ones, but they remain confident in their containment efforts. Edwin Zuniga is a Cal Fire Information Officer for the CZU Lightning Complex fire in San Mateo and Santa Cruz counties south of San Francisco. We are expecting to see a little bit of increased fire activity, but we believe that our fire line is going to be able to contain the fire if there's anything that does kind of pop up. Fire officials say they're making sure firefighters stay well hydrated and providing breaks to combat fatigue as crews near their third week battling the blazes. Some major changes at the U.S. Postal Service have many concerned about the upcoming election and mail-in voting. But the state of the Postal Service also has made it harder for state and local agencies to do their day-to-day jobs. KQD's Nina Sparling has more. The Los Angeles County Department of Health Services sends prescription refills through the mail to the vast majority of its patients. Some have reported waiting up to three weeks for refills on essential medications. It typically took just a few days before the changes at the USPS, the agency said. The department is one of several government agencies in California to file a declaration in a preliminary injunction against the Postal Service, pushing it to roll back changes that have caused such delays. The Department of Conservation, the Labor and Workforce Development Agency, and the Department of Consumer Affairs also report delays. That's meant essential documents like hearing notices and settlement agreements have arrived too late to be useful, or not at all. For the California Report, I'm Nina Sparling. 
Major League Baseball pitching legend and Fresno native Tom Seaver passed away this week at the age of 75. Here's Seaver displaying his playing greatness at a game in 1978. Seaver with a pause, the check and the pitch. He bounces to first base, Dreesen has it, he goes to the bag and Seaver's got it! With more on this native son of California, here's Valley Public Radio's Laura Satsui. Tom Seaver was elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1992 for his 20-year career in the major leagues. John Shestakovsky with the Hall of Fame says his early years with the New York Mets set him apart. He came up in 1967 and immediately won Rookie of the Year. Two years later, wins his first of three Cy Young Awards as the best pitcher in the National League and leads the New York Mets to their first World Series championship in only their eighth season of existence. Shestakovsky says Seaver put the Mets on the map, earning him the nickname Tom Terrific. In total, he won 311 games. With his death, Shestakovsky says baseball loses a giant among us. You know, what connects all of us to baseball is the people. Perhaps nobody meant as much to his team and to the fans of, of a certain team than, than Mr. Seaver for the Mets. Fresno High School, Seaver's alma mater, renamed Echo Avenue in front of the school Tom Seaver Lane in 2013. According to the Hall of Fame, Seaver passed away due to complications from dementia and COVID-19. For the California Report, I'm Laura Satsui in Fresno. Across the country and California, census workers called enumerators are supposed to be knocking on doors this month to help people complete their 2020 census forms. But are these enumerators getting the time they need to finish their jobs? If they aren't, it could lead to an inaccurate census count that might cost the state federal dollars. From L.A., here's KPCC's Caroline Champlin. For the last week, Sarah Mangoni has been working as a census taker in North Hollywood. It's so much fun because I've been entirely in my neighborhood. Yesterday, she got up at 7 a.m. and was planning to work in Van Nuys. And then... I started to hear my census phone, like, ding, ding, dinging. <laughs> you know? It was her supervisor texting. Mangoni was being laid off after only one week on the job. The text read that the Census Bureau was starting to lay off enumerators, quote, due to a lack of work. This surprised Mangoni because in L.A., the in-person counting phase only started a few weeks ago, and there's still nearly a month to go before it ends September 30th. There's a disconnect between all this information. Something is awry. Next, I called Stefania Ramirez with the California Community Foundation. She organizes census advocacy in L.A. I told her some enumerators were being let go. No, 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 you're scaring me now. What are we going to do? She expected door knocking to continue fully until the end of the month because self-response rates have been so low in L.A. County, less than 50 percent in some areas, especially communities of color. I am appalled. Our numbers do not reflect nearing completion, so I don't understand how they can signal that. Census Bureau officials said workers would continue to follow up through the end of the month. They would not comment on personnel matters. But there's another twist. After KPCC called Sarah Mangoni's supervisor, she was reinstated as an enumerator. For the California Report, I'm Caroline Champlin in Los Angeles. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis from KQED Podcasts comes on our watch season two. New Folsom. 
a story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. California relies on incarcerated firefighters to help fight many of its wildfires. But can these inmates turn it into a career once their sentences are over? From our sister show, The California Report magazine, Ariella Markowitz has a story of one man in the Inland Empire trying to do just that. Brandon Smith never thought he'd find his passion in prison. But three years into his sentence, he got a job on an inmate fire crew and discovered... He really loved it. It helped me to like reconnect back with the community. On the fire lines, he worked for $1.65 a day. When he got out, he was hoping to translate his experience and training into a real firefighting job that paid a living wage. That's the first thing I told my parole officer when I came home. I'm like, hey, man, I want to be a wildland firefighter. He's like, all right, well, good luck. It's hard to get EMT certification or hired with the Forest Service with a prison record. But this week, the state legislature passed a bill that can make it easier for people who volunteer for prison fire crews by allowing them to get certain crimes expunged from their record. We get the same, if not more, experience than the firefighters out here. But when folks come home from prison or come home from these fire camps, they're not able to utilize the skills that they've learned. If Governor Newsom signs this bill, Brandon says it could be a big win. But the state needs to do more to create a strong hiring pipeline for former inmates, especially with California burning the way it is. For The California Report, I'm Ariella Markowitz in L.A. You can tune in to The California Report magazine to hear more about Mr. Smith's journey or download the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And for the rest of this show, a conversation. From time to time on the California Report, we've been talking to people who live and work along Atlantic Avenue in Los Angeles County to see how they're dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. This morning, we get a wider view from Rex Richardson. Richardson is a Long Beach City Councilman who represents a stretch of Atlantic Boulevard where we met him. He believes the pandemic has struck people along Atlantic in very different and surprising ways. Atlantic Avenue, Uh, is one of those boulevards that, you know, is sort of a main street for many communities where you see government, you see schools, you see communities, you see business, all taking place on this corridor. How do you think people have been, particularly residents, small merchants on Atlantic, your stretch of Atlantic and others, how do you think they've been weathering this pandemic? We've seen a few things. And the areas that have been, uh, have thrived traditionally with a lot of restaurants aren't doing so well. Uh, given that the, the challenge and the devastating impact on restaurants. But when you look at areas that, you know, maybe haven't had, had so many restaurants and they have staples like markets and pharmacies, they're actually showing that they're doing very, very well in hard times. Oh, it's so interesting. You, You're saying kind of the, the places that were the stretches of Atlantic that were a bit more neglected right. are weathering it Absolutely. better than places that got more attention. Well, how and, do you account for that? Well, it comes down to the type of... What businesses are small businesses opening in in our communities? They're opening places where you can get rice and beans and groceries and vegetables and toilet paper, staples. 
Those are the things that are thriving right now. Uh, the restaurants, the things that, that, that folks, you know, typically they want, they want to walk to their local bar, bars are closed. They want to walk to a local brewery, there are no breweries here. These are areas where people typically go to work and they come home. Um, and in those areas, people are, are resilient and, and they're doing what they need to do to survive. So, and they're supporting their local, their local businesses. You're talking about bodegas, right? Your local bodegas, your local corner store, your markets. Uh, all of their receipts are showing that they are thriving. When you look at restaurants, the restaurants that have been able to be nimble, not have a, a big footprint, but be able to leverage uh, delivery platforms, outdoor patios, things like that, have figured out how to, how, to, how to turn the corner. There's still a lot more to learn, but I think that helps us understand uh, and take a look at Atlantic Avenue as we chart what the recovery looks like in the future. How do we build a more resilient economy as we move into the future? So what worries you looking ahead? Well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, the pandemic, has, it's, it's really laid bare a lot of disparities as it relates to uh, along health lines, economic lines, uh, uh, lines of race. Um, and it really calls into question our new definition within cities, our definition of resiliency. It's not about preparing for an earthquake. It's not just about climate change. Now it's about making sure that your cities have public health capacity. It means making sure that you have a resilient economy and investing in things that people need. It means that you are thinking about race and have a racial equity lens as you address planning, economic development, all of these things. Because when a pandemic hits, it could be devastating on communities. And it's important that cities become more resilient by embracing racial equity and public health. But there's an inflection point for us to begin to rebuild an economy that is resilient and inclusive. And not only along Atlantic, but a bunch of other places. Right, Atlantic Avenue can be a starting point. Uh, we can look, there's an Atlantic Avenue or a main street in every community. I would say start there. So we can begin to build, uh, reshape an economy that's, that's inclusive and more resilient uh, and, and, and it works better for everyone. That's Long Beach City Councilman Rex Richardson talking about LA County's Atlantic Avenue. And that is the California Report for Friday, September 4th, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin, Alice Wolfley, and Holly J. McDeed. Our editor is Angela Corral. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Enjoy the long weekend if you have one. We'll be back on Monday with a special conversation about labor in California. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment, Earth Justice, because the Earth needs a good lawyer. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. 
Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.